Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, today I've got a really great guest for you. His name is Scott Young. Now, many of you may not have heard of Scott before, but he's recently come out with a book called Ultra Learning. And uh, he's not necessarily within the Stoic community, but I was Googling around online looking for some good techniques for better learning. And I came across his website and his book, Ultra Learning, and I thought, man, this guy's fascinating. He's got so many good tips. He's done it all before. He's shown us how to learn better and how to learn quicker. And I thought... Why don't I get him on the show? We'll have a fascinating discussion. And um, he was very generous with his time and came on and we just had a chat. And um, man, so much good stuff in this episode for you if you're looking to upscale your learning process. Uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about Scott and then we'll jump straight into the web, sorry, into the uh, podcast. So Scott Young is a writer who undertakes interesting self-education projects such as attempting to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months and learning four languages in one year. So, he's such a fascinating guy. He's done it all before. He can show us how to do it. Um, so, have a listen and you can find all of the links in the show notes to where you can find Scott Young's stuff online as well, including his book, Ultra Learning. So, make sure you head there. But without any further ado, I present to you my interview with Scott Young. Okay, so we're here with Scott Young. Now, Scott, I reached out to you a couple of weeks ago and said, I'd love to have you on the show because what you're very interested in uh, and and I'd really encourage people to check out your blog because you've got some great stuff up there Um, and, of course, your new book. But um, ultra learning is is your specialty and and really kind of teaching people how they they can learn effectively and efficiently uh, and really... uh, you know, this this even makes me think of something I read from Marcus Aurelius, one of the Stoic philosophers yesterday about, he said that one thing that he learned from one of his mentors was don't just be satisfied with getting the gist of something that you're learning, go all the way, try to really understand it, right? <clears throat> and so for a lot of my audience, they'd be really interested to hear from you how they can, you know, be a more effective learner. Um, cause we all want to, you know, get as much information in uh, before our learning capacities, uh, you know, decay as we get older as Marcus Aurelius would say but Scott I want to give you the opportunity um you know you've just written a a New York Times Mm -hmm. bestseller called Ultra Learning um why don't you tell us a bit about uh did I say New York Times or was it Wall Street Journal? Wall Street Journal but that's right (laughs) so sorry (laughs) I I just remember that I was like I've got to get that right but uh why don't you tell us a little bit more about what Ultra Learning is? Well, so the basic idea, and I I want to kind of preface this by sort of articulating kind of what you said, why learning matters, because I think people tend to think of learning as like it's about school. And so that's Mm. one phase of your life that you have to study for exams and and then then you work and then, then learning kind of feels like it's in the background. But I think this is a bit of a misconception because that's really talking about studying. 
And studying yeah. is maybe a small part of your life, but learning is really what you have to do as a human being to function every single day of your life, every moment. Anytime you remember what you ate for breakfast this morning, that requires memory, which is part of learning. So if you think about learning in this kind of broader sense, then it's an incredibly important aspect of your life that you need to understand. And so the idea behind ultra learning was just finding people who often are not in scholastic situations, and they want to learn something that's difficult. They want to be able to acquire hard skill. Maybe it's for a new profession. Maybe it's learning a language. Maybe it's being able to fulfill some kind of private ambition they've had. We've, you're talking about, you know, understanding philosophy. I'm sure a lot of people would like to really, really deeply understand philosophy. And that's itself a kind of mm. self, uh, self-directed kind of learning project. And so the idea behind ultra learning is to look beyond school, look beyond going back to university and studying something this way and really ask yourself how, if I were really serious about learning something, I really wanted to do it in the best way possible, not just the easiest way possible. Mm. Uh, how would I become really skilled at something or, or really know something? And so this book was kind of an exploration of that topic, not only from my own personal experiences, taking on kind of interesting projects and other people that I found who've taken on even more interesting projects but also a lot of the cognitive science on learning because learning is probably the best studied subject in psychology. So we know tons of things about how people learn that are, are not widely appreciated. They're not widely understood outside the field. And so I think for someone who is interested in bettering themselves and becoming a better person, which is learning by definition, then this is something that's important to understand. Yeah, no, I love it. And again, that's why I wanted to have you on the show, right? Because it's like, a lot of people don't understand that, look, if you, if you want to actually learn efficiently, if you want to really grasp the idea of something, maybe the best thing for you to do is to take a step back and first understand what it means to actually learn, what it means to be a true student uh, of something. And, and we, we do tend to have this conception in our society that you, you, know, you have to grow up and you have to go through your 12 years of school and then you have to go to university and right, you get your degree. But uh, you've got quite uh, quite a, a, an interesting story about how you kind of um, got really necessary skills for yourself uh, without having to go to university necessarily, or, or at least in, in, in a crazy amount of time, right? Like a, a yeah. significantly shortened amount of time. But I thought that a good place to start with you sharing with us kind of what it means to be an ultra learner would be the story that you've told about uh, learning Spanish uh, with your friend Vat. I'd love it if you could tell that story sure, again because sure. it's, uh, it's quite inspiring. Yeah, so um, one of the projects that I took and I sort of documented my blog was a project I called The Year Without, La- sorry, the Year Without English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, apparently I can't speak it right now, but The Year Without <laughs> English. And the, the project idea was that we, I was with a friend and we were going to go traveling and we wanted to you know, learn languages. We wanted that thought that would be an interesting idea for a project to do. And the sort of method of the project was that when we would land in each country, we wouldn't speak in English to each other or to anyone that we would meet. And there's a bit of a backstory to this of me trying to learn French uh, years before this and really struggling, even though I had a chance to be in France. And so you'd think, well, if you're living in France, obviously you're going to learn French and it didn't seem to be working out that well. And that was kind of surprising for me. I I think a lot of people would assume, oh, well, if you just go to that country, then you'll just learn it. It'll be easy. And I've actually found that most people don't learn the other language that they're going to uh, live in the country that they're staying in. 
they don't usually do that unless they stay for a really long time and there's some really strong pressure for them to do it. But mm. I mean, I've met people who like, especially in Asian countries that have lived there for decades and they can't speak barely more than a few sentences of the native language that is there. So whether that's Korea or China or Japan or something similar. And so I think it's clearly the case that learning languages is hard. I don't think I need to, you know, say that. Most people, I think, find it hard. Most people can remember taking, you know, years of high school French or Spanish or German classes yeah. and don't feel like they're fluent in the language. But I think it's even more so than that, that often, even when you're in the best circumstance, you're not just taking a class in college and you don't really care about it that much, but you're, you're really trying to do it. It's your number one goal. You're living in the country. Even then, many, many people fail. And one of the observations I had from that experience in France was that one of the big problems of this is not really an intellectual problem. It's not really a, well, how do you memorize all the vocabulary, learn grammar, or these kind of things? Because those things are issues. I don't want to say that they're, they are part of what makes learning a language hard, but they're not the central issue. I think the central issue is that we often don't really need to use a language to communicate. So we're not mm. having, we're not being forced to use it. We're learning it purely as this academic exercise. And because it's just this academic exercise, not only do we not have as much motivation to really like, what's the, what is the right word to say this matters a lot more when you need it to get something done yeah. versus when it's just, you know, for a test later. But also this uh, fact that you don't need it to communicate means that it tends to occupy a lot less of your time. Even if you're a very dedicated student, maybe you're studying three, four hours a day, that, that's like a half, as a part-time job. That's a lot for most people. But yet that's far less than the total amount of time that you're speaking and listening to people throughout the day in your native language. Mm. So my, uh, my observation of this is that one of the challenges of someone who is not fluent or at least not proficient at all in a language when they want to go to a place where they want to do some immersion or they want to learn the language is that they say to themselves, well, you know what, I'm going to uh, first try to get a grasp of it, just get settled. And then, and then maybe a little later, I'll, I'll, I'll really start to kind of practice and, and learn and do this kind of thing. Mm. And the problem is that when you get to a country, so to take France, for instance, when I went there, I didn't speak French. And so who do you make friends with? Well, you make friends with people who speak English, either other expats or other French people who have a command of the English language, and you get used to speaking them in English. Now this becomes a real barrier because if you want to actually start practicing, you have to go from the language you're fluent in and everyone's used to you being very proficient in to a language that you can barely speak at all. And yep. this real strong communicative gap creates strong social pressures to keep you inside that bubble. And I think that bubble, it's, it's kind of an irony because you can even be in places where there are virtually no speakers who share the native language with you and still be very like pressed inside that bubble. Mm. I remember I was in uh, Kunming, China, which is a smaller city. Well, <laughs> 10 million people or so, but it's a smaller city in Chinese terms of uh, in China, sort of north of Vietnam. And there's not a lot of Westerners there. There's, you know, it's mm. mostly Chinese people. And yet I would meet people who've lived there for seven, eight years and they can't speak Chinese. And it's sort of like, how do you even function here? Because yeah. there's, there's only, you know, there's probably less than 200 people that, uh, that you could even possibly communicate with um, in, a, in a sort of native language to native language sense. And so mm. this is a really strong problem. And so this is, I just this, say this backstory because there's a motivation for wanting to do something so extreme. But the idea was, well, what if you didn't have that problem? What if you went to the country 
And from the first day, you only spoke the language you were trying to learn, even though you can't really speak it very well, even though you're just using Google Translate, even though you're just using a dictionary. And so this was sort of the kind of hypothesis, I guess you could say, that, uh, that Vat and I had before we started our project, that this would work, that if you did this, mm. you would be able to learn the language more quickly. And mm. I would say that in Spain, it worked incredibly well. We went mm. there, we had done a little bit of practice beforehand, so I don't suggest doing it with zero practice, but we stuck with it. And what happened is, well, first of all, we spoke to each other all the time in Spanish. So even though our Spanish was rudimentary, we're still practicing the basic, you know, hola, como estas, donde esta el baño, these kind yeah. of like basic phrases. But then anyone you meet also learns to kind of deal with you in that language. And I think what happens a lot of times is if people only know you through the kind of less proficient language, there isn't as much social friction. I mean, sometimes people, I don't want to talk to that guy because he can't really communicate very well, but that actually happens a lot less than you'd think. Whereas if you go from being really fluent to struggling through conversations, people suddenly lose patience because it's a, it's the transition between those. It's really mm. difficult. And so we were there for three months and I would say, you know, fluency is a really difficult thing to gauge. I think some people have standards where it means it's identical to your native language, even though very, very few people are, are actually that level in practice. Whereas other mm. people say, well, you know, if you can get through a conversation like this uh, and then you, you know, you miss a few words then it's also okay. But I would say that we were able to get to a level where the functioning of day-to-day -day life of having friends, going on dates, seeing movies, doing all these kinds of things was smooth enough that it was not a problem for us to do mm -hmm. things. And so we could really like live in Spanish life and do sorts of things that would really be impossible if, if we didn't have that proficiency. And so this was actually the first leg of a bigger trip. So we went to Spain and we did that. And then we went to Brazil and did it again. And then we went to China. I mentioned Kunming, I went to China. And then finally we went to Korea. And, and while it is harder with Asian languages, they are more work to learn, the, the principle remains the same. And so I think, you know, maybe even if you're not interested in learning a language, this story doesn't have that much relevance to you if you're, you know, well, I don't want to go to another country and immerse myself 100%. <clears throat> I think this fundamental principle about learning that there are often barriers that aren't really about you not being smart enough, but about the environment, about the way you've set up your mm. project and your challenge that prevent you from really achieving the outcome you want, whether that's, you know, to get a skill for a new job or learn a new hobby or, or even learn a subject like philosophy. I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it kind of seems like, so, so you went into the country and said, we're not going to speak English at all from, from touchdown, right? Which is, which is putting yeah. yourself in such an uncomfortable situation, right? Where, your mind is kind of forced into finding new pathways to learn, right? Like you're, you're forced into a really uncomfortable situation that, I mean, we now know like that can kind of put you into some sort of a, a flow state, right? It's like where you can kind of maybe see some things that you wouldn't have seen if you had the option to speak English, but, but this goes for everything, right? Like how important is that, that interconnectedness between setting a goal and putting yourself in a difficult, uncomfortable situation and, and learning effectively. Yeah. So I, I think one of my sort of big observations from not just my, my personal experience, but really from looking at tons and tons of different research that deals with different problems of learning. Mm. And, and I talk about a lot of it in my book. And it, it's kind of hard to summarize like things that are about totally re di differently related phenomena that have different mechanisms. But I think a very common theme is that learning when it is most effective is effortful. Mm. And it's effortful because 
the thing that your brain kind of wants to do is to avoid learning something new. That what mm. you're trying to do is how can I use old habits? How can I use the old way that I know how to do something? How can I not make as big an adjustment and still get mm. the outcome I want? So, I mean, this sounds really abstract, but a really easy way that you can think about this is if you're talking about learning another language, I mean, it's way easier to speak in English, right? So if someone has some English proficiency and some proficiency, or well, maybe the native proficiency in the language you're trying to learn, I mean, there's, it's always going to be easier for you to just speak to them in English in the beginning, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the, this is sort of a real obvious case that yes, but that won't let you learn the other language. And so I think this idea that we're kind of cognitive misers, that we, we try to avoid effort and that learning is sort of intrinsically effortful, uh, not necessarily bad, not necessarily unpleasant. I don't want to give the impression that, you know, it has to be painful or agonizing the way maybe we thought about it in school, but that it requires conscious attention that requires mm. some sort of deliberativeness that, you know, if you are learning something, it means you are not as good at it as maybe some other alternative. And so, yes, it's always possible to find some detour that avoids learning. And maybe, you know, maybe that's fine for you in some circumstance, you know, maybe you going somewhere for a week and you don't really care that you don't speak the yeah. language after that's fine. But I think when you do have the intention that you'd like to leave with some skill, this is a very important observation. And so throughout the book, Ultra learning, this is sort of kind of the, the background subtext of the, the thesis of the book, which is that because learning is effortful, I don't think it tends to work very well in this kind of default, well, I'll just do this and then you'll learn it kind of state. I mean, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you get a goal that really excites you and you just, you're thrown into it and you just, you know, love it and you learn it. So some people don't talk mm. about learning a sport or doing this kind of thing. But I think that's just leaving it up to chance. That's leaving it into, well, maybe if I just fall into the right situation, everything will work out for me. Mm. Whereas if you, you know, want to learn something and you're not confident that you're going to necessarily be just happen to be in the perfect environment, you have to be very deliberate about creating not only the environment that you want to learn in, but also the kind of structuring the project, structuring the effort that you want to put into learning it. Because it is very easy, I think, to just fall back to not learning, to sort of finding some way that you don't actually have to put in any effort to get yeah. the result. No, I think that's such an important uh, kind of observation that you, you really need to put yourself in that position where your brain has to learn, like it has to stop relying on those just those pathways that it's already created right and try to build some new ones and i i'd love to talk about something that that actually really relates to the way that a lot of my audience would view learning and and i think it'd be good to talk about the importance of this because in in stoicism this ancient philosophy they really taught that it was far more important to focus on the process of what you're learning or, or what you're doing as opposed to focusing on the outcome because mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if the, the process is the only thing that leads to the outcome, right? So right. stop focusing on the future, start focusing on right now. And you had this great quote, you said, how would we do things if doing them well were all that mattered? Can, can, can you kind of talk to us about the importance of, of focusing on the process and, and maybe how you go about getting yourself into the mindset where you can do that properly? Yeah, so I think with respect to the quote that you, you said where I, I was talking about this, uh, I gave a, a talk uh, and this was sort of my kind of takeaway of this is that, and I sort of had another way of phrasing it, which is the hard way is the easy way. And mm. the problem is that I think very often we kind of shy away from doing things that seem like they might be kind of difficult and scary. And so we're looking for some sort of shortcut. And I think that the irony in learning 
often is that this kind of how do I make it so that it's not actually hard so that I don't actually have to get frustrated so that yeah. I don't actually have to experience the feeling that I'm not good at this. You're trying to kind of manage that psychological piece so that you're trying to make everything easier so that it'll just happen automatically. So you see this in some ways where like everyone's trying to gamify things and make it so that, you know, you can do it in two minutes a day and this kind of thing. And, and I don't want to say that those efforts are completely a waste of time, but I want to say that my sort of personal observation is that if you take the opposite tack, sort of deliberately say to yourself, okay, what if doing this the right way is the only thing that matters. So I'm only looking at like, how can I optimize and make it more effective? But yeah, if it's more difficult, it's more difficult. If it's harder, it's, if I get frustrated, it's frustrating. If I have to set aside some time to do it, I have to set some aside some time to do it. What happens is that when you, you view it from that lens, you very often get out of a lot of these problems because yes, mm. you know, you're a little bit afraid to only speak in that language, but that lasts like 10 minutes and then you're not afraid of it anymore. Whereas you're reading a book at home 10 minutes a day and you're still always afraid of speaking to someone for months. And so I think this sort of idea of trying to figure out what is the most effective way to do it first is often a, a useful sort of uh, kind of thought experiment to go through with a lot of your projects. So if you were thinking about, um, you know, we were talking about learning a language, but you could also talk about many other kind of fields. There's sort of things that if someone said to you, you, you would say, oh yeah, that would make sense. I would see why that would work, right? But people don't consider them because they're too difficult. One of the stories I, I talk about in the book is a friend of mine, Tristan de Montebello, who uh, he wanted to get good at public speaking. And so he did an ultra learning project to learn public speaking. And his approach to it was just, well, I'm going to speak like six, seven times a week. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that like, when you say it to people, they're like, oh yeah, I, I see how that would work. But it's the kind of thing that you'd say, well, yeah, but I don't think I'm going to do that though. I think maybe, maybe like, ah, maybe I'll try to have a, you know, join Toastmasters and sort of lurk around for several months. And then maybe I'll do one speech when I have some time. That's sort of the approach most people take. And so there's a disconnect here between like, oh yeah, that would clearly work, but I think it's too difficult for me. And the thing that I found in his project was that uh, well, not only did, you know, he learned a lot of public speaking, but he had kind of a pretty incredible result by the end of the project. After about seven months, he was, this is through the Toastmasters program. He was a finalist for the world championship of public speaking. So I think mm -hmm. it kind of just, not that everyone can become the world champion of public speaking, but just showing that often all these sort of barriers we throw up to doing something the way that we kind of already know is the right way to do it. We yeah. throw up all these barriers that we're kind of getting in our own way. We're kind of, and so I think even if you can't commit to doing the hardest possible thing, or even if you can't commit to doing something in the perfect ideal way, just because of your circumstances, you don't have enough time, you can't live in the other country, you can't do these kinds of things. Working through that thought experiment and actually really being honest with yourself about what's the what it would be the best way to do it, hmm. I think you often get a lot closer to that result when you have to be like, okay, well, I can't, I actually can't do the absolute perfect thing, but let's do this thing that's pretty close. Works a lot better than like, how do I make it so that it's you know easy and I don't have to actually put in yeah. any effort. Yeah, I love that. I, if if I can. Um if I can say what I'm hearing, but maybe you don't want to say you're really calling a lot of people out on their own bullshit, right? <laughs> like it's like a lot of people they and, and I think we see this on every level of humanity. It's like, you look at something and something just makes intuitive sense. You're like, I can see that if I did that, 
I would absolutely improve. But our minds tend to want to find shortcuts, right? And so we say, oh, well, maybe, you know, like, no, life's not supposed to be easy. Learning's not supposed to be easy, right? And sometimes you just have to do the difficult thing that's going to get you the best results, right? Yeah, you know, I, and again, I don't like to be overly critical of people. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there's some context in my life where I'm doing this without realizing it. So this isn't really like me standing from the point of view of like, oh, I always do the hard thing and then mm-hmm. you lazy people should be doing this. <laughs> it's recognizing that this is our nature. Uh, so mm. it's my nature as much as it is anyone who's listening to this right now. And so it's not about you know, blame or condemning people for being lazy or, you know, this kind of thing. It's more just recognizing that you do this, Mm, (laughs) that you get in your own way, that you have these problems. Um, You know, I had a, I remember, um, so Matt and I, we actually did a TEDx talk about kind of our language learning trip. And and I remember afterward, I was talking to someone who was actually kind of in a situation where they could do what we were doing. They, They were going I forget where they were going. It was a Spanish speaking country. I maybe want to say Colombia. And he was going with his wife and they were going to go teach there or something for like a year. So this is like Mm -hmm. the ideal case of you're going to a place where, you know, immersion would really help. And you're, you know, like this is a, this is probably the perfect possible scenario. I mean, I, I kind of sympathize with people like, well, I want to learn the language, but I can never travel there. Okay. Well now you're going to have to, you, you can still do what we're talking about, but you have to modify it. It's not quite as obvious. But this, this was a case where he, you know, all right. And I was like, great. Well, you know, you should, you should do the no English rule. And I remember the kind of the, this response was sort of like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that kind of this way. And it's, it's so, so funny because to me, the, the way I felt about that was just that, like, this is something that I know kind of in my bones that like, no, 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 if you wanted to do it, this would be the way to do it. Yeah. And uh, it's so it's funny that it's so hard to kind of persuade people to do it because I think there is this sort of emotional reaction of like, oh my God, that sounds way too intense. And I want to say, no, you know, what's way too intense is trying to learn a language for like six years and failing, right? Yeah. You know, what's intense is, is just sucking at this for so long because you just won't do the thing that actually you have to do, right? And I think this applies to a lot more than learning. I think I've seen this with people where they're, you know, they're trying to get in shape, but they're like doing an exercise or diet regimen, which is like obviously not enough to get them there. But it's like, I know this thing seems really hard. This would be the right thing to do. But once you actually do it, you often find that it's a lot easier than you thought. And so that's sort of the Mm. kind of hard way is the easy way that if you can kind of get over the, the, the barriers that you yourself throw up to even considering that, um, then you can often go a lot further than you think. And, and again, you know, you can't travel to the country. Okay. Well then how could I simulate immersion? Maybe I'll have tutoring online or I'll go to some mm. group. Or, so it's not to say that you have to be in the perfect possible ideal scenario to do this rather to realize that most of your objections to doing it are psychological, not actually to do with your life situation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You know, the barriers that our minds put on us all the time, you know, that's really the biggest thing we need to learn to overcome, right? And, uh, you know, you talk about a fitness journey, you know, I, I come from the fitness industry as well. And so I, I've seen that people, it, there's, there's, it's kind of like a tipping point, you might say, where if they do put in the work and if they, if they get past those barriers in their mind and they, and they do the uncomfortable things, at least for a few weeks, it might be they wake up one morning and all of a sudden they feel that they're a little bit leaner and they say, wow, okay, I've got some results now, you know, like I'm, I'm excited and, and, and they kind of catch what we would call the gym bug. 
And so all mm -hmm. of a sudden they absolutely love the process. They dig into it more because they know they're getting those results. Uh, whether it's with your language learning or anything else that you've learned, like, do you find that there's a tipping point where you go from being really uncomfortable to finally getting to that point where you're starting to see more and more connections and, and you, and you kind of like can accelerate your learning. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, having exposure to these kinds of intense learning efforts can help you with further learning efforts. I think one of them is just, uh, coming up with kind of good methods for learning. Mm. Um, and so this was a big part of the book is trying to kind of outline what would be the basis of, of good methods for learning. So if you, for instance, used uh, flashcard systems, which are, are one way that's pretty effective for memorizing a lot of information, if that's the kind of thing that you have to do, which in a language, for instance, if you've done that for learning a language and then you have to learn something differently, let's say like law or medicine, which also has a lot mm -hmm. of factual, you kind of already have some tools in place. You're like, okay, I would kind of do it this way. Um, similarly, you can see people who, you know, if they, if they kind of adopt certain psychological tools. So if you've, if you've used immersion successfully in the past to learn a language, again, you're going to go to some other field and be like, okay, this is sort of the way that I need to approach it. You're going to have those tools. So I think one of the advantages of taking on these kinds of projects is that you cultivate tools that you can use for things. And I think these tools are, you often don't acquire them as well if you are in formal classes because they kind of tell you what to do. So you never really have to think sort of self-consciously about what's the right way to learn this because someone's just telling you what to do. They're just saying, okay, read mm. chapter three and then answer these questions. And then, you know, and so students do get a little bit of exposure to, well, I have to study. So I have to organize some of my studying time, but that's a much, much smaller fraction compared to, oh, I have to also organize the curriculum and figure out whether I should be doing assignments or, the, you know, those are the questions that most students never ask. And because they never have to ask them, they don't really have any experience with deciding what's the right way to learn something. And so I think this can often lead to a, a misleading appreciation of what's the best way to learn as well. I, I remember um, talking to students who would be wanting to take like an online class, for instance, and for some classes they would have online lectures and for some they would just have assignments and maybe a textbook mm. or something. And very often students would complain, oh, there's no lectures for this class. How can I go through it? Uh, very rarely would they say there's no assignments for this class. How can I go through it? Whereas the th one of the things you learn from learning is that most of the learning you get is through doing. So if you're doing something that's at all a practical skill, um, even just something like math, for instance, is a kind of practical skill. Even if you're doing something like that and you don't have actual kind of problems, you can work through ways you can practice it. I mean, sitting and watching is it helps in some cases it's necessary but to say that that's where the bulk of the learning is taking place is mm. i think is probably pretty misguided and that's an example of something that if you haven't had that exposure where you've been trying to learn something for something that actually matters where you're actually going to use it later you don't get that kind of first-hand experience so i think having these projects gives you exposure to those kinds of things gives you new tools and I think it also just opens you up to this possibility that you can learn anything that you want to learn. You can be good at anything you want to be good at mm. if you approach it the right way. And so I think a lot of us have this kind of learned helplessness that we aren't good at something. And so we just sort of, wow, that's just part of my nature. That's just baked into it. And 
yeah, maybe you're not going to become Kobe Bryant or you're not going to become Michael Jordan in basketball. But yeah, you could learn basketball if you wanted to. There would be a way of doing it where you could become probably a pretty good basketball player. Even Mm. if you're five foot four and, you know, uncoordinated now, you could probably do it. Same with art, same with math, same with languages, same with programming, same with philosophy, any subject that you wanted to tackle. um, You could do it if you wanted to, if you approach it the right way. Mm. Yeah, and I see in a lot of what you're saying, it's it's about breaking down these barriers that we put up in our own mind, whether it is saying that, oh, you know, I need to have the lecture or I need to go to university, I need to go to school, you know, I need to, you know, have these situations. But really the best way to learn is to do the thing that you want to learn, right, to get into that situation. And I'm interested to know if you think that there's an importance for or... If, if there's a necessity for people to jump into learning something that they absolutely already believe that they would love to do, right? Cause you see a lot of people going to university and making the choice of what they study based on, well, what's the job that, you know, is most available in the marketplace or, you know, what do my parents want me to study or what would be a responsible thing for me to study if I was mm-hmm. going to, you know, make a, make a career. And I tend to lean towards telling people, listen, if you, if you learn something that you're genuinely interested in, that you absolutely want to learn, it's going to go so much quicker for you. And that's, I mean, if anything, could that be almost a shortcut, like picking something that uh, I don't want to call it a shortcut, but you know, picking something that you're already genuinely interested in, in learning. So when I pick projects and when I do things, I'm always looking for an overlap of interest and utility. So Mm. I don't like picking something that's purely interested. I think I'm never going to use this later. And even just from a purely interested standpoint, because I think uh, projects where you don't have anything meaty that it gets applied to are also, they also tend to get untethered. So I think Mm. it's hard to sustain interest if you don't have some concrete, source of rewards that you could apply to and, and and having a job is one way of doing that so if you're learning something for professional reasons that's obviously important but i think even just like if you're learning something and there's no way you can get anything out of it i think it's hard to so i think you kind of need both you need to have you need to have an intrinsic interest to it where it's just like this stuff is cool <laughs> and then you have mm-hmm. to be like well here's what i would use it for and the using it for can be very concrete, like it's the skill that I'm going to get this job with, or it can be kind of abstract that it can be like, well, obviously philosophy, I'm going to use this to live better. Or, um, you know, it could even be, well, I want to learn this subject so that I can understand this other thing that I care about better and has that utility in that way. And so I think you do need both. I think they're both important. I think the way I would sort of phrase that question or sort of step back a second is I think what, what a lot of people, the way they think about it is, I have these fixed sets of interests that I've been kind of given by default. So I have maybe three things that I'm interested in. I don't want to say it that Mm. limitedly, but I think a lot of people think that way. I'm interested Mm. in these three things and this is what I want to do. And, And maybe that sucks if those three things maybe don't lead to great job outcomes. The way I want to think about it is actually kind of to ask the opposite question of why aren't you interested in more things? And so I think for a lot of us, we don't have interests in a subject because of this sort of internalized negative emotions we have associated with it. So we're not interested in math, not because math couldn't be interesting to us, but because we don't feel like we're good at it. 
We don't mm. feel like when we were in that math class, they made us feel dumb and oh, there's all those numbers and I couldn't keep track of it. And it was so hard and it was so confusing and frustrating. And I couldn't see what we were using it for and blah, 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 blah. And all these internalized, and maybe this isn't even happening at a conscious level. I'm not even saying that you, you deliberately make this kind of um, observation. It could even just, oh, you know, you just get a little bit of like, you know, you had some bad experiences and you just want to stay away from that. And so I don't want to say you need to rush headlong into everything that you hate either. I think there's plenty of middle ground. Mm. But I think one of the things that I would sort of stress is that try to invest in the process of learning and, and overcoming some of these weaknesses, not merely so that you can be good at things, but also so that you can expand the range of things that you are interested in. <laughs> so mm. if, you know, a, a good example of this is that uh, if, if you've never really learned a language before um, and you've never done anything like the kind of project that I've described, it's often the case is like, I'm sort of interested in learning a language, maybe not, right? Like, cause maybe you have some experience in high school and then you go and you try to learn a language and maybe you can actually speak it with someone. And suddenly it clicks that not only do you want to continue to learn that language, but often you want to learn lots of languages. And so suddenly this kind of field of interest for you has opened up that was sort of hidden before it, you weren't sure why you were interested. Like, yeah, I don't really care about that because it was sort of covered over. And so I think for a lot of us, most of our possible things that we could be super excited about in life are covered over because of these sort of bad formative experiences. And it isn't to say that you have to do everything you hate, but it is to say that I think the art of learning and art of getting better at learning is also about opening new horizons. So not just picking those three things that you really like and just doing those, but figuring out how you could really like philosophy or history or math or sculpting or painting or snowboarding or, or anything that maybe kind of you don't have that excitement about right now. So I think our flexibility and interest is, is much more malleable than it first appears. Yeah. No, I think you make some really good points in there. I mean, starting with the, that, that combination of interest and utility. I love that. Like that's such a great way to think about it. Um, and also like expanding your horizons of what you're actually interested in. Like I, uh, I even think of it kind of like, uh, you know, now that you mentioned that it's kind of like food, right? Like if you only ate the foods that you only liked, it's like you might stop eating different foods at like age three, right? And then all of a sudden you don't expand your palate, but how many times have you tried something that you're a little bit, Oh, you know, I don't really like the look of that but then as soon as you try it, you're like damn that's really good right it's like <laughs> you could be like that with so many different subjects if you were actually willing to go through the discomfort of of starting the learning process right so mm -hmm. i think that's really good advice for people um i i really wanted to you know one of one of the reasons that i kind of went 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 searching and looking at your blog and everything was i was really interested in uh learning some sort of tips for speed reading. And I'm not sure if you've actually done a lot of work on speed reading and stuff like that in the past, but if there was any way that you could give us some tips on that, I know that'd be helpful for my audience as, as well as for me. Right. So I, I hate to be the person who's uh, throwing a wet blanket on, on people's enthusiasm, but my general uh, feeling of speed reading is that it probably doesn't work in the way that it's advertised. So Excellent. I actually wrote an article. If you, uh, if anyone wants to Google it, it's called uh, I was wrong about speed reading here are the facts because I was initially an advocate of it. So I found this was maybe oh, 15 years ago. 
I, someone suggested speed reading and I got a speed reading book and I tried it out and it kind of worked for me. I, I felt like mm. I was doing it. And, and so this led me to kind of say, Oh, you should be doing this to speed read and, and, you know, just based on my private experiences. And then only, you know, this was maybe four or five years ago, I decided, okay, let's actually look at a lot of the research from people who have studied it. And the basic finding is not that, I don't want to say that, uh, you know, it's impossible to do anything like speed reading, but rather that the comprehension trade-off, so the amount that you are missing when you are speed reading, the amount of ideas and facts and knowledge that you are not actually internalizing is a lot lower than a lot of people think. And so there's a kind of a self-deception here that you think you're having perfect comprehension or 90% comprehension, but maybe you're having more like 20% comprehension. Mm. And so, uh, I'll, I'll say two things. So first I'll talk about kind of why this is, and then I'll talk about what you can do if you want to read faster. So the first why this is, is that a lot of the ideas behind speed reading is that it's primarily inhibited by your kind of eye movements or another theory is that it's by sub vocalization. So the fact that you're having to say the words sort of under your breath, so to speak, that this is what's inhibiting you from reading more quickly. Mm. And modern theories of cognitive science suggest that instead it's probably what's called working memory, which is not a physical movement, but something inside of your mind, which is parsing together what's happening, making sense of the paragraphs, making sense of the page, this kind of thing. And that's sort of the primary bottleneck, not so much eye movements and being able to see things rapidly. If you moved a thousand times the speed, you'd still have the same working memory. And that would be the thing that would constrain you uh, mm. from being able to learn. So that's why it's implausible to say, I can read a thousand pages a minute or people who do that because uh, the things that we know about the brain suggest that you are not, the problem isn't, you know, maybe you could even move your eyes and this kind of thing uh, over, well, not that fast, but you could move them at a faster speed, but then it would be the problem of getting it into your head. So where speed reading tends to be more effective is when you are okay with a much smaller area of, uh, of comprehension. So mm. if you are okay getting only the gist of something, so only that 20% or you're, so that's sort of skimming, um, which is, I would say speed reading is a form of kind of structured skimming, or you could have what's called scanning where you're looking for something in particular. So you, you only care about, well, I want to see where they're talking about this in the book and then you go and find that. That's also mm. helpful. So I don't want to give the impression that you should you always have to read word by word and save it. There's different speeds, but I think they have different purposes. I don't think the idea that you can just use some mechanical technique and it will just make you read a lot faster. Now, how do you read faster? Well, given this working memory bottleneck, the idea that your ability to understand what's being said, parse it, make sense of it, that this is probably the bottleneck for most uh, reasonably skilled readers. Um, the best way that you can read faster is to read more because the more mm. you read, the more chunks you have of common patterns, common ideas, common words, even maybe sentence fragments, you can parse it more and more quickly. So the people you see who really can process huge amounts of books, they can just read enormous volumes and understand everything. Those are people that read a lot of books. So, so that's, that's kind of like the, the kind of, well, that's not as not what you wanted to hear maybe in terms of having a great technique. But I think it also suggests that if you do feel like you are not a very skilled reader right now, let's say you only read maybe two, 300 words per minute and you find it really difficult and it's very frustrating. If you read more, if you just invest in reading more of the kind of books you want to read, you will get faster and you will yeah. be able to read it more fluently. And so in some ways reading it, it's a little bit like learning another language that as you get, as you do it more, you get better at it. And so I think if anyone's interested in the, that research, 
you can definitely check out that article. And I mean, my word's not the final word on it. So you're free to try it out yourself. I know some yeah. people are quite committed to speed reading, but I do think um, there are a lot of effective techniques for learning more effectively that we have do have some research behind that and speed reading doesn't seem to be one of them at least right now. Hmm. Yeah. I, I really like that answer. I think it's, it's, um, it's kind of taught me as well that that might be the wrong question, right? The right question is like, how do I effectively read? How do I, how do I really get the idea? And, and um, is there, is there any research out there that shows what the absolute best and most effective way to study a book is or like, like, like what, what's going to get the most information into your head. So this is a, actually a good question because when the kind of default assumption when we're reading and especially when we go to speed reading is that while I'm getting everything from the book, I just don't, I just don't do it fast enough. Right. That's yeah. sort of the default assumption. Whereas sort of all the research that I've done on learning and this kind of stuff kind of points to the opposite that even when we're reading things the normal way, we don't actually uh, retain yeah. that much or remember that much or have it parsed in a very deep way. And so I think there's lots of different ways that you can approach studying a book, depending on kind of what your goals are and, and how you're wanting to go through it. But I think one of the really sort of very basic techniques, which is shown to be quite effective is what's called retrieval practice. So there's actually this really cute study that was done by uh, Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt, where they got students to study a text. So they're reading something and then they had to answer some questions about it and they got them to study it in different ways. So one group, they said, you know, read it once and then you're gonna do the test. Other group, you're gonna do repeated rereading. So you just read it and then you read it over and over and over again. And this is very similar to how I think most people would process textual mm. information. So maybe you read it and then you have your notes and you read over your notes, but it's primarily the same kind of activity. You're just reading it over and over again. Another group, they got to do a concept map. I don't know if you're, you or your readers have heard of concept mapping before, but the basic idea is you draw like a concept and you have arrows pointing out to mm. nodes of different concepts. And so the idea here is that we're going to connect all the ideas in the text together. Finally, they got people to do what they call free recall practice, which is where you read it, you shut the book, so you only read it once, and then you just try without any prompt to remember as much as you can from the text. Hmm. And it's really interesting because they asked the students before they did the test, how well do you think you learned the information in the text? And those who did repeated rereading, those who read it over and over again, gave themselves the highest marks. They thought they really, really understood the text. Um, they were the ones who are the most confident. However, if you do the actual test, you find that they don't do so well. And in contrast, those who thought they were learned it really poorly were the free recall group. They're like, oh my God, I don't remember anything from this. When they're trying to do free recall, they did the best on the test. And mm. so this shows that our, our kind of intuitions about how we're remembering and retrieving information are kind of faulty. And so uh, one of the ideas here by uh, a researcher, um, uh, uh, I think it's Robert Bjork, I'm, I'm maybe forgetting his first name, but he had this idea of what uh, we call judgments of learning or basically that we decide how much we've learned based on how easy it feels to us. So if it feels really easy, then we think we've learned a lot. We've got a lot in memory. Now where this kind of comes into play is that if you read something over and over and over again, it feels easier and easier. It becomes more and more familiar, but being familiar doesn't mean that you can actually recall it from memory. It doesn't mean that it's actually been stored in a way that you can access from a question or something. And so this leads to this phenomenon students have where they, they studied so much and then they get to the test and they're like, well, it was those, those questions the professor was asking. They were asking the wrong questions. I, I, I knew all that information, but they were asking these weird questions and I couldn't get it. No, 
It's because you were very familiar with the information, but you weren't able to actually recall it to sum it up from memory. So mm. this may sound like an academic concern. Maybe you're not studying for a test. Maybe you don't care. But what I would suggest is that the main reason we read books is for retrieval. The main reason we're reading it is not so that when we read it five times later, it feels more familiar to us. The main reason is so that when we're in some other situation, we're like, ah, remember what this book said about that. Hmm. And so I think retrieval practice should probably become a much larger part of our ongoing reading efforts. And there's a few simple ways you can do this. One simple way is just have a few sheets of loose leaf. Whenever you finish a chapter, just write down what was in the chapter you just read. It's yeah. just, just a summary, some notes. Don't look at the chapter. Don't, you're not going back and trying to find what, oh, right, and then they talked about this, and then you're, that's transcribing, that's copying down. That's not what I'm talking about. It's trying to recall it from memory. Now, if you're actually studying something, so you mentioned studying a book, if you had a book here, reading meditations or something like this, mm. and you really want to know it, then you might want to do uh, delayed retrieval practice. You might want to wait a day or two. So when you pick up the book the second time, you know, it's been a couple of days. What was in the last reading? That's a good time to do that because spaced retrieval practice is even better than doing it right after because then you've had to you really, it's, it's actually harder. It's harder to know what's in it and that really strains those muscles, but you will also really internalize it much, much better. Now there's ways you can go even beyond this. You can do flashcards. You could do self-testing. You could do kind of explainers. One thing I like to do for books that I find are really important is I like to write essays about them. So if you write an essay, then you're going to really internalize the concepts yeah. because even if you have to look up some of the stuff, you have to kind of organize it at a high level, which maybe yeah. is not in the text at all. So these are all ways of processing the information, doing something with it, retrieving it that quite frankly, most people don't do for any books they read. And I think yeah. if you, you don't have to do it for every book. I don't want to make it sound like every single book you've got these huge homework assignments, but if you understand that the default read through of a book is actually going to just leave a lot of it on the floor and you feel that a book that you're reading is that important, then doing some kind of retrieval practice is probably helpful. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's, that's some really brilliant advice. And that's the, probably the question I should have asked at the start. Cause that's, that's what I want my, my listeners to get. It's like, how do you, how do you mm -hmm. efficiently get the most information out of as possible? And yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, I, I just had one more question or area of discussion here because, mm -hmm. and it kind of has to do with goal setting, right? So you'd, you'd probably agree that a lot of the learning process starts with the kind of goal that you set for your learning so that you're inspired to do something. And you said, you said that a goal that doesn't scare you also won't excite you. And that quote excites me because it's something that I've seen so much in my own life and in the lives of people around me. It's like, if you pick something that is so big and even close to unachievable that it, it scares you, but, but you know that there's the opportunity there, right? Like it's like mm -hmm. the, it's like the pinnacle of it's on the edge of like opportunity and threat. Right. Um, can you talk to us about how important it is to set a goal that scares you and also excites you? So I think this is, this is sort of the, the kind of insight I'm kind of taking from psychology is that uh, our emotions, we tend to think of them as very distinct categories, but that's probably not the case. Um, there's a really interesting book, uh, and I'm going to forget the author right now, but she was talking about how basically we have this idea that we have these very discrete emotions, like fear and all this kind of mm. stuff. 
Whereas if you actually look sort of in not only people's facial expressions, but fMRI studies as sort of the brain's signature, so to speak, of emotions, or even like neural systems in the brain, it's not really clear that we have these well-defined subsystems for, you know, that, that uh, anxiety is really that much different from depression or, or that fear is that much different from anger or these kinds of things, even mm -hmm. though we kind of feel, oh, no, those are totally different. And so it seems to be that they're probably at some level of interpretation. So it's not that there's something physically different about your body when you are feeling one thing versus another. And so the idea here is that when we are feeling uh, both excited and afraid, they both involve kind of a general level of arousal. And the only difference that seems to be between excitement and fear is sort of the valence of it, whether it's something that, so fear means that you are, it's, some, it's you're aroused or you're kind of excited, um, but something bad you think is going to happen. And yeah. uh, excitement is when you think something good is going to happen. And so those are those two things. And, and what I kind of wanted to make in that point is that these emotions are much closer together than they sort of naively feel. And, and I think if we reflect on our experiences, we have that, you know, if you've ever done anything kind of thrill seeking a little bit, like I went skydiving um, a, a year or two ago. And that's the perfect example of a mixture of fear and excitement that you're afraid and then the fear kind of gets your heart rate going and then you're also a bit excited and then you're, you're you know, you kind of goes back and forth between those. And mm. what I think the problem and I think that the thing that we're trying to avoid in setting goals and, and this is related to sort of this idea I was talking about with effort in the first place, because to, to summon up effort, to actually do things, you kind of need that arousal. And not just in sort of a momentary sense, but in a kind of, you need to be present, you need to be alert, you need to be taking this seriously, if that was sort of a phrase that you could describe yourself. Mm. And because of this, you kind of need to have that tension a little bit. It's not possible to just, oh yeah, that'll just get done regardless, is not going to create any tension. And so I think it sometimes is a useful exercise to consider a goal that does scare you a little bit. Now, it doesn't have to scare you in the sense of like, well, that's impossible for me to do that. Obviously, goals that are impossible don't actually scare you because you know you won't do them, right? Mm. It, it has to be something that has this feeling of maybe I could do that, right? And, and, and what would that mean if I would do that? And what would I have to do in order to do that? And so I think in the projects that I've undertaken, they've always been sort of designed with that idea in mind that there's something that is plausible enough that I could do that I'm engaged with them but they are kind of at this edge of my ability so that I know I'm going to have to take them seriously in order for them to actually happen. And so I think when we're taking on projects, there's the, there's the two sort of opposite tendencies. The one, the kind of like the pie in the sky where there's no, you don't resonate with it because you know, you're not going to do that. This is just daydreaming, right? I'm going to be a billionaire, right? This is, yeah. okay, sure. I can write that on a piece of paper, but it doesn't feel anything for me because, all right, well, but what is that going to change about my behavior? But if you were going to say to yourself, I'm going to save 50% of my income, right? Now you're kind of, okay, well, how would I do that? Now you're, you're kind of, so maybe in this financial domain, that kind of scares you a little bit because you know that it would be very difficult to do this, but you'd have to be serious about it. And so I think mm -hmm. for learning, getting those projects that when you write them down, you feel this mixture of fear of excitement and you're not quite sure which is which yet I think is often a good sign because it shows that it's something that has a lot of, um, it, it's significant to you. You know, there's, uh, there's some research as well showing that like one of the things that we seem to detect is not even so much that something is necessarily good or bad 
um, primarily, but also that this is significant, that this is something to be paid attention to, that mm. this is something that you need to devote your resources toward. So I think the more you can design your goals in such a way that they activate these emotional subsystems so that they feel significant, they feel like you have some tension, they feel... So having that right feeling, I think, is really important. And I think just making a goal where you don't really feel much at all is probably going to be the kind of thing that you don't even remember to do it two weeks later, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I really, I really appreciate that. I think that's such a great point. Just, just get yourself in the situation where it's just on the edge there where you feel like you can achieve it, but there's going to be resistance. And so it scares you and it also excites you. It's like, that, that's it's great advice for my audience. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, Scott, I, I want to thank you again for coming on the show and spending your time here. I'm, I'm really grateful that you are so willing to come out and, uh, and you know, share your information. But uh, where can my audience find you? Where can they go to see you online or get your book and all that sort of stuff? Oh, great. Yeah. So uh, by all means, check out my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And uh, I have links to many articles I've written on these kinds of topics. I also have my own podcast where I, I talk about these sorts of ideas that we've been talking about. And if you're interested in my book, uh, it's Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition and Accelerate Your Career. And it's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Um, if you like listening to books instead, which I, I'm a fan of as well, then uh, you can also get the Audible version, which I am narrating as well. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks again, Scott. And uh, hopefully we'll get to speak again in the future. All right. So there you have it, my interview with Scott Young. Now, I'm sure that you guys got so much out of that like I did. And uh, make sure you head to the links in the show notes, grab his book, let him know how much you appreciated him coming on the show. But uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed that and I'll talk to you next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J. E. Drew. See you next time.